I'm curious, this is a different time of year in Ketchikan. Uh, we're starting to slow down. Uh, people start to go on vacations. People start to get sick. But there's something else that happens around this time of year. Has anybody been down to Creek Street lately? I hear, I hear laughs and I see smiles. How about Ward Lake? Right? Well, our family has been to both in the last couple of weeks. We had to go down to uh, the yarn shop for my project my wife is working on. And we went as a family. It was a pretty day. And as soon as we opened the door, every face grimaced and covered their nose. Why? Dead salmon, right? Stench. It just smells horrible. Before In Ketchikan, before we can get to what they call the most wonderful time of the year, we have to go through the most stinkiest time of the year. A time when we need a clothespin for our nose to go to Ward Lake. The smell of decay and rotting fish corpses fills the air with this pungent smell. And as we think about today's passage, I want you to think about this smell. Now, Sarah told me if I was one of those pastors that used props, we could have got a Ziploc bag and like brought a fish out and set it out here for you. But I don't know how many people would have stayed to the end of the sermon. So we decided not to do that. But have you ever smelled that smell in a church? I have. I've smelled that smell of death and decay in a local church. Uh, When I was in seminary, I would preach in little churches, and usually if you're having a seminary student come preach for you, you're in a bad way, right? And I would preach in some of these churches that had run off several pastors. There was very little doctrine. There was a compromise on everything as long as they could keep their friends. The age of the congregation was usually slanted one way. There were excuses. There were stories. One church I preached at, and I won't call the name of it, it was a Presbyterian church. It was real small, and it had the cutest little chapel and the sweetest little people that cared nothing about anything I was saying. They had their group of friends, they were in a little town, they had their little chapel, and that's all they cared about, but it smelled like death. We have to ask ourselves, when we look at churches like that, has God changed? No. Has his promise to build his church changed? No. Can there be sweetness in a small congregation? Yes. We know that. There can be a sweetness in a small congregation, but what is the pattern of death? What, 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 is the, what brings that smell of death? Is it not having enough programs? Is it not having bursting at the seams with members? Is it not having a lively building project? No. The pattern of death for God's people begins with one word, and it is rebellion. Because churches that cling to God's instruction may come on hard times. Churches that cling to God's instruction may experience persecution, but they will do it joyfully. They will do it faithfully. But churches that rebel, churches that start to say, did God really say? Well, they'll start to rot from the inside even if they're big in numbers, as we'll talk about a church later on. Seminaries that do not compromise may lose numbers, but seminaries that do compromise will eventually die or cease to be seminaries, like the one in New York who recently had a, or in the last couple years, had a a chapel service in which they bowed down to plants. W.A. Criswell reminds us And he reminded the convention in 1985 that William Carey's mission stations did not close because of their fidelity to God's word, but because of their lack of faithfulness. Friends, I want you to hear what Amos says today, that death for God's people is only a breath away. 
and it begins with rebellion. In today's passage, we get a whiff of the stench of a dying church. Look with me at Amos 4, picking up where we left off last week. Amos 4. In Amos 4, the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through the breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along towards Harmon. This is the Lord's de- declaration. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three nights. Offer your leavened bread as a thanksgiving and a sacrifice. Loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that's what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the the Lord's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you while you were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while another no rain and withered. Two or three cities staggered to another to drink water, but were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew, the locust devoured, your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt, and I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill the nostrils, fill your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like the burning stick snatched from a fire, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, Israel, this is what I do to you, will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Here he is, the one who forms the mountains, creates the winds, and reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. And this is the word of the Lord. May he write his truth on our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. God, be with us in the next few minutes as we examine your word. God, give me the words that you would have me to say. God, guard my mouth and guard these people's ears. Let your truth be the only thing that remains in their hearts. Have your way in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Amos, we get a whiff of the stench of a dying church. In this passage, we find three elements that add to the smell, to the aroma of a dying church. A dying church is made up of selfish members. 
A dying church is guilty of artificial worship. And a dying church refuses to turn back to God. Now, as we've already talked about with the kids, Amos ministered in the 8th century B.C. He was a contemporary of Jonah. He was a shepherd and a fig farmer in Tekoa, which is 10 miles south of Jerusalem in the country of Judea. And he's going to minister to Israel, the northern kingdom. You know, by this time, the kingdoms are split. And Israel has turned their back on God's instruction. Now, they still did religious stuff. They still did temple stuff. In our day, you might say they still did church stuff. But their hearts were far from God. Their faith was nominal in number only. It was superficial. And Amos is calling them to repentance and warning them of God's coming judgment. There was a stench of death in the country, and it was God's people. The first thing we see is that a church is made up, a dying church is made up of selfish members. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, Bring us something to drink. The Lord has sworn by His holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through the breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along towards Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. This passage starts out with, hear, listen, hear this message. And God accuses the cows of Bashan. Now, who are the cows of Bashan? The cows of Bashan, God is singling out these women who graze on the abundance of the land. They graze on the abundance of the land. They are self-indulgent. They, they eat as they plead. They are slothful. They are lazy. Remember last week we talked about the cushions um, that they were, they were resting on in all of their abundance. They are demanding. They are entitled. They are like those people that Paul spoke of in Philippians when he says their God is their belly. Philippians 3.19. Far from being Proverbs 30 women, 31 women, these women only care about their comfort and they only care about their indulgence. They're demeaning to the poor. They're demeaning to others. They don't care about others. They, they care about selves and they're disrespectful to their husbands. One commentator writes, these women are not only guilty of maltreatment of those who are inferior, but they mistreat and disrespect their husbands. They say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. Bring me some more. I'm assuming it's alcohol here. Bring us some more. Bring us something to drink. Now, I think when we think about this passage, we don't want to be overly simplistic in how we understand, right? I don't think this passage is saying that wives cannot ask their husbands to bring them something from the fridge while they're up. So let's say that, right? Like, if tonight and I'm expecting some wives are going to test some husbands. If tonight you get up and your wife says, you know, bring me a seven up and you call her a cow of Bashan, like you rightly deserve the couch, right? Like, so don't hear me say that. I've already decided if my wife asked me tonight, I'm going to say, do you want ice or not? But this passage does speak of those ancient Karens who strut around selfishly indulging themselves and defying God's marriage structure. 
They don't respect anyone. They don't respect people they deem lesser than themselves. They don't respect their husbands and they don't respect God. It's all about them. And God swears by his holiness. Like that's a strong oath. When the eternal creator is swearing by his holiness, like, I mean, God speaks in general, we listen. He's swearing by his holiness. That is a strong oath. It is the same type of oath he takes in the Davidic covenant where he says this king will, kingdom will never end. That these selfish women will be taken away with fish hooks. These selfish, disrespectful women will be taken away with fish hooks. Like fish on a stringer. Now, it seems like every time I fish with people here, there's always a cooler or a hold in a boat. But when I was a kid fishing for brim and bluegill, I had a stringer. It was yellow. And I'd catch that first one, and I'd loop it through his gills and put them off the side of the dock or the bank, and I'd keep fishing. And when I got one, I'd put them on that stringer. And by the end of the day, I had a, a line full of these panfish that I could take home and fry. And, and God says, you cows of Bashan, that's what I'm going to do to you. Your walls of your city are going to be broken down. Remember last week we saw the strongholds would be taken. So think just rubble and smoke and, and, and wailing and there's holes in the wall. And then you see these women led away with fish hooks through their noses. Just an utterly uh, uh, a horrible end. He says that's what's going to happen to these lazy, self-centered women who aren't doing what they're called to do. And we see that Assyria would soon defeat Israel, and there's actually a historic relief with a picture of this very thing happening. Israel being led away as slaves with hooks and rings in their noses. So how do we as the church think about this passage? What is the timeless principle here? And I think it is this, God's people are not to be lazy and they're not to be self-centered. Church, you are not called to be selfish. You know, when I was a kid, there is like no worse thing I could think of being called than selfish. Like if I, if I got called selfish as a kid, like I'm sure many were the same, like you were just ate up with like, I ain't selfish. Like I, I'm, that's not who I am. But now we call it self-love. Now we call it self-care. But friends, a church full of self-loving people does not have long left. A church full of people who are going to put themselves first and not do as Christ did and put others first does not have long left as a church. They are beginning to decay. If the members desire to serve themselves, they will not worship God as he has commanded. Second thing we see is a dying church is guilty of artificial worship. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. And you have to read this with a, with a, with a hint of sarcasm. God gives us a hint of sarcasm as we read this. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Come to these temples, he's saying. Uh, there's a big temple in Bethel. He's saying, come to Bethel and rebel. Come on. Come to Gilgal. Rebel even more. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as, you, as a Thanksgiving sacrifice. And loudly proclaim your free will offerings, for that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord. God's saying, Come on, keep doing it. Keep worshiping me in an artificial way. Keep worshiping me in a way where your heart is far from me. Check your little boxes. Go ahead, go check your little boxes, Israel. You got this. He's saying, Do whatever you want. Bring your sacrifices, bring your three tenths every, every, or your, uh, 
Every three days, bring your tents. Keep on with your fake worship. Keep on with your rote acts while you lust after everything. Keep on with your nominal faith, God says. It does you no good. It's not for me. It's for you. It's to ease your mind that you're still my people, even though you're not acting like it. God's sarcasm here makes clear that no matter how much they practice their phony worship, God will not accept it. He says, this is what you Israelites love to do. It's about you. Just keep doing it. It's not about me. Their service was about self-gratification. They were like the preacher that likes to hear his own voice. They, they were like the, the, the writer who writes books not to edify the church, but to get more attention or more money. They serve the church for praise. And God sees their worship as a sinful rebellion because God desires our obedience over our sacrifice. Israel's just going through the motions, superficial way. They still practice church. They still practice doing things. They just didn't do it according to God's instruction and their hearts were far away from him. Friends, the church must have a right heart during worship. We have to do the right things for the right reason. How many of us walk through the doors of this church this morning not really desiring God? How many members come sporadically to a gathering because it's really not that important to them? How many people do the bare minimum? How many people are actually committed to God and his people and how many people are just checking their boxes? And God says, what? Check your little boxes. It's about you. Do your thing. Superficial worship, friends, this morning does nothing for you because your heart is far from God. We saw that last week, right? That God sees our hearts. How many passages did we read? And we didn't read them all. That says, God sees into the hearts of men. You can fool me. You can fool the elders. You can fool your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you cannot fool God. He knows our hearts. And he knows when we're really doing things for us and when we're sacrificing for him. Because Hebrews 12 says that we are called to offer God acceptable worship. And our dry, our artificial worship does no good if our heart genuinely does not desire God. So the third thing we see is a dying church refuses to turn back to God. I won't read all of them, but just let your eyes fall from 6 to 11. We see these these declarations of their disobedience. Everyone saying, this is the Lord declaration. He says, I took away your food. I took away your rain. I took away your crops. I killed your young men. I killed your horses. I brought judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does it say? And still you didn't turn back to me. You just kept doing it your way. All these judgments point to Israel's covenantal failure. They refuse to learn. They refuse to accept his correction. They refuse to do what he has said in his word. And because of that, they're destined for destruction. They're hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. And they're trying to trying to go up against the God who what? Look at verse uh, 12 and 13. He is the God who formed the mountains. He created the wind. He makes dawn out of darkness. He is the Lord God of armies. And God says, you better get ready to meet me. Death is coming. 
Friends, a stiff-necked, hard-hearted church does not honor the Lord. A stiff-necked and hard-hearted church that does not honor His Word is not a true church and it will not exist very long. It might become a community center on its slow death, on its hospice care. It might become a community center with a basketball court, but it will not long be a church of Jesus Christ because pretty soon nobody wants to go there if they are not actual Christians and it's an actual Christian church because the world can do community stuff way better. It is not just a verbal affirmation of God's word, but actually seeking to follow it that we are called to do. We see this in at least three areas. I have more than that. In a lot of areas, it is human history. Think of Andy Stanley. He's been in the news lately. He's the one that wanted to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. So he didn't want to preach books like Amos because he said only the Jesus of the New Testament is the, is the one he wants to follow. The Old Testament, we've got to unhitch from that because people don't want hard sermons like today, Alan McElroy. And they just had an LGBTQ conference. Think about the church up in Anchorage that has caused such a rift in our local convention because they're ordaining women pastors and not following what the Bible says. Think of all the New England churches that are dead, essentially, or dying. Think about all the churches in England right now that you can go and order a beer in because they're pubs. They're all churches who started with one word, rebellion. Did God really say in his word? The pattern of death among God's people is, did God really say? But we must be a people of repentance. We must be a people that come back to God. We must be a people that come back to his word. We humble ourselves, always coming back. Friends, how many of your hearts this morning are far from God because you don't want to follow what he says? Well, Amos is a strong warning against that. Israel just went through the motions. They came to church. They came to equipping hour. They brought a casserole to the dishes, to the meals. But their hearts were far from the one true and living God. They were rotting inside. And so I want to give us six ways this morning where we can avoid decay, where we can avoid rot. Six ways that we can, instead of being the stench of death, can be the aroma of life. Six ways that we can avoid decay in Whitecliff Church. The first, lash this assembly to God's instruction. Tie it down tight to the Bible. Unswerving from God's instruction. We want to avoid decay. It's not let us have softer preaching. It's let us have more biblical preaching. We want to avoid decay. It's not let us throw balls in the basement with the kids. It's let's teach the kids the attributes of God. Let's lash ourselves to God's Word. The pattern of death for God's people starts like it did in Genesis 3. Did God really say? We have to tie ourselves down tight to God's word as his people. Second, let's unrelentingly pray for one another. Unrelentingly pray for one another. J.C. Ryle said this, if you want to find out how much someone loves you, find out how much they pray for you. Friends, pray through the church directory every day. 
Friends, pray the requests in the bulletin. You say, well, they don't change that often. That's okay. They don't need to. We need to pray for Scott Belmore in London every week. We need to pray for our, our, our law enforcement, our Coast Guard, every, medical people every week. We need to pray for Advent as we approach every week. We don't have to have new and fresh things. Every, I'm not, we're not running marketing. We're praying for God's people. Reach out to the members of your small group. See what things you can pray for them. Pray for the elders. They need your prayer. Spurgeon said one time, if my people cease to pray for me, they should let me know so I can quit. That's a paraphrase. But it's true. If you guys all send me a text today and say, Pastor, we're done praying for you. You'll have my resignation by next Sunday. Pray for the elders. Pray for the pastors. Be a sweet fragrance of life. Pray for your fellow church members, friends, because a healthy church is a praying church. Third, uncompromisingly outdo one another in showing honor. We read that in the New Testament, right? We are to outdo one another in showing honor. Honor and love your brothers and sisters in Christ and not in a superficial manner. Not in flattery. Not in trite little comments here and there, but honor one another. Be selfless. Love them in a way that does not show how great you are. Help someone in a way where you're not going to be seen as wonderful. Help them in a way that no one will see. What if we as a church just cared for one another because God said it's what we're supposed to do? What if we didn't just care for one another so that people could see? Let's just desire one another's good. Don't be the phony church person, but as Paul says, let your love be genuine. The phony person stinks. The genuine person has that refreshing aroma of life. Friends, outdo one another in showing honor. Fourth, selflessly give of your time and resources for the kingdom. That's not just money, that's time too. Some people are really good about giving their money and they look down their noses on people that aren't, yet they don't volunteer for anything. And some people are really good at volunteering for stuff, yet they squander all their money on living for themselves. Friends, the goal of the Christian is to use everything we have for the glory of God. Our time, our money, our homes, our cars, our lives, our vacation. Everything we have, everything I own, should be for the glory of God. Why do we have to beg people to serve in churches? Why do people have all the excuses for not serving? Well, they fill their time with things they want to do. And they fill their checkbook with the things they do. Show me a church that is selfless in what they have, and I will show you a church that is the fragrance of life, that love the Lord God. Fifth, keep the fact that eternity, keep, no, keep the fact that your life is short and eternity is unending always before your face. Always before your eyes. Always in view. The Bible says our life is a vapor. I talk to anyone who's older in the congregation and ask them, they always say the same thing like that country song, don't blink. Yet we turn around and live like life is unending. Like we will have tomorrow to get right with the Lord. Like we'll have tomorrow to serve the Lord. Today I can do what I want. But the Bible says that we are grass today that is one day thrown into the furnace. You know, that illustration the Bible uses always resonates with me because when I was in Afghanistan in Coast Province, the rainy season, the green season isn't very long. 
And that grass that grew up, we would watch them from over the Hesco barriers. The old ladies of the village would come out and cut that grass down and would throw it into the oven to bake their bread. That's what the Bible's saying. We're all like that grass. Rainy season's short. Pretty soon we're thrown into the oven. Pretty soon we turn brown and we're chopped down and and carried away. The Bible says that is your earthly life. Are we really going to just spend it on self-love? On self-care? Are we really going to live lavishly here? Show me you don't really believe what the Bible says without saying it. Church, live like your treasure is in heaven, like you're going to spend eternity with the one who created the world. Don't waste your time living for all this stuff when sweet eternal life awaits God's elect. Sixth, make repentance a way of life. Make repentance a way of life, a turning back to God, a returning to his word. Do not assume because you have asked Jesus into your heart that you can now live any way in which you wish. The evidence that you have repented that one time and turned to the Lord is that you keep repenting, that you have a lifestyle of repentance, that you keep turning back to God's word. You keep turning back to what he has said. Repentance is not a mere confession, though confession is a part of repentance. Repentance is to turn from the sin and to turn to the Lord. If you left your spouse... Repentance for leaving your spouse involves returning to him or her. Repentance for watching pornography is not simply being really sorry until the next time you log on. Repentance for watching pornography is setting up safeguards in your life so that you cannot watch it again, or at least not without getting caught. Maybe you struggle like the women of Bashan. Maybe you are the wife that has to have it all your way, and you're going to scream at your husband until you get it. You feel sorry after you lose your cool. And maybe you tell your husband you're sorry after you lose your cool, but that is not repentance. Repentance is actual steps of selflessness and humility. Repentance is reading what the Bible says about biblical womanhood. Repentance is pursuing what the Bible says about biblical womanhood. Friends, whether you're male or female, you are responsible for you. The reason that you're not a biblical wife is not because your husband isn't doing what he's supposed to do. The reason that I am not the, the a biblical father is not because my kids aren't doing what they are supposed to do. It's not the kid's fault if I fail in obedience to God. It is not the church's fault for not having a special program for you. Friend, you are responsible for knowing what the Bible says and for doing what the Bible says. You are responsible for being faithful. If you are not faithful, it is not the church's fault. It is not my fault. It is not your wife's fault. It is your fault. Because all of us are called to repent and to turn back to the Lord. Are you a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people? Are you the person that It's like, man, shut up so I can leave. Are you the person that can laugh it off? Are you the hard head that God has to bring the two by four between your eyes before you see it? Friends, we are all called to confess our sin and turn back to God because God is good and because he is holy and because he deserves it. 
If you read this book in its entirety, all of Amos, you will see that all hope is not lost for Israel. You will see at the end that he will restore a booth for David. You see in this passage, look at verse 13, that he is the one who makes dawn out of darkness and strides the heights of the earth. And he will be true to his word. Turn with me to Luke 1, 78 through 79. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It will be a large part of our Advent series as we think about the dawn of redeeming grace and how God has visited his people. Luke chapter 1, verses 78 through 79, we have this prophecy of Zechariah, this prayer, and he says, because of our Lord's great merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Friends, there is a dawn coming and indeed has come. And that dawn is Jesus Christ because at the appointed time, God sent forth his only son, born of a virgin. God, Friends, God sent forth his son who broke into human history. A light has dawned that we might have relationship with the Father. Christ gave himself as a substitutionary sacrifice that all who turn to him might have life and be saved from the wrath that is certainly coming. That day of judgment that we have read about the last two weeks that is certainly coming. And friend, you will continue to be the stench of death until you repent and believe this gospel. You will continue to be the aroma of rotting corpse until you turn to Christ. If you reject God's offer, if you make excuses, if you come with your own terms on how God's going to meet you here or there, friend, you are dead in sin. The death and sin we see in Ephesians 2. You are still dead in your sins and trespasses and hell is your consequence. You know, I read a passage this week that was encouraging to me. It was a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was preaching, and he got to the end and talked about hell just like we're talking about now, and said that people have accused me of speaking too much of this subject and being too harsh and being too heavy. And he says, friends, I'm going to keep doing it. Because if you don't see the beauty of Christ, you should see the ugliness of hell. And if you do not turn to him, and if you refuse him, and if you bring your objections, friends, that is your consequence. Israel refused to turn to God. And they were carried off by Assyria. But for those of us who hear, those of you who heed this call, those of you who turn to Christ, there is eternity with Christ, eternal bliss, and this fragrance of life forever with him. You have to repent. You have to turn from yourself and turn to him. You have to confess your sin and you have to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you must do that today. In this passage, we can smell the stench of a dying church. We can still smell the stench of God's people who aren't doing what they are called to do. They're selfish. They're artificial in their worship. 
They lack repentance. How would we view a stubborn person who refused treatment of a debilitating yet curable disease? All right, like if I had like a, a lump growing out of the side of my neck and it, was, and it was curable and I just refused it, how would you view me? How should we view a church that refuses to turn back to God when death is there a consequence? It's the same thing. We watch churches in our culture do the same thing. It is the pattern of death with God's people. Did God really say? And this passage should cause us all to reflect on which group we're in. Are you the rotting salmon stinking up the place? Selfish? Refusing to repent? Checking the Bach worship, just showing up when you feel like it? Or are you the sweet fragrance of life in Christ? A true church, friends, will be the aroma of life. God, you are good. God, you are holy. You are merciful. God, you are sovereign over creation. You are the creator. You're the one who makes the wind, who carved the mountains, who set the limits of the ocean. Every single molecule is under your direction. You direct the, men, the feet of men. And you are worthy of all praise. And you are worthy of our lives, our redeemed lives being lived to you. God, I pray that we would be obedient. God, I pray that as a church, whether big or small, whatever we look like, God, that we would be an obedient church. That we would not be found saying, did God really say, but we would be lashed to your words. That we'd be a people who pray for one another, that love one another, that are committed to your kingdom. And Father, I pray for us all here today, God, for the one who is doing those things, God, I pray that you would encourage them, that this very morning their heart would be encouraged and that they would press forward. God, for the nominal believer who's just checking boxes, God, I pray that you would break their hearts. God, break their hearts and bring them back to you that they would turn back to you. God, give them no rest. Ever put their rebellion before their eyes until they turn back and live faithful lives. And God, for the one who has never trusted you, the one among us here today who is not a believer in any, any aspect, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Show them the beauty of Christ. Show them their need of repentance. Father, we pray all these things. For your son's sake, amen.